Over recent weeks and months, I've watched and listened, like many of you, to the ongoing debate over the voice to parliament play out in the media, at dinner tables and in the public sphere. Conversations have caught fire and it seems that a lot of confusion has got in the way of the facts. This is partly because right-wing hardliners have deliberately launched misinformation and disinformation to seed fear, cloud issues and inflame oppositional debate. But also because many people are saying they don't really know what the proposed voice to parliament and constitutional recognition actually mean and what it will mean for Australia going forward. And yet, they're not taking responsibility to actively seek out facts, stay informed and educate themselves about the voice. Now, the referendum date is set for October 14. A referendum, to be clear, is a question put to eligible Australian voters that has the power to change the constitution, that is the body of rules that sets out how the country is governed. Holding a referendum is the only way for the government to amend the constitution. Now, the vote on October 14 would enshrine in the nation's constitution a mechanism known as The Voice for a group of Indigenous representatives to offer advice to the executive government and parliament on matters and issues affecting the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It is an advisory body designed to improve outcomes in health, education and wellbeing. This advisory body would not have the power to veto laws. Embedding the voice in the Constitution would also finally recognise the incredibly special place that Indigenous people have in Australian history. To me, this just makes sense. As a journalist, I understand and I am committed to platforming many different points of view. But as a person committed to equal opportunity, fairness and improving outcomes for Indigenous people who are proportionally the most incarcerated people on the planet by percentage of their population, the most disadvantaged ethnic group in Australia and who currently have a life expectancy of nearly eight years shorter than other Australian men and women, well, I personally think this referendum is a once-in-a-generation chance to bring our country together. And I will be voting yes. So I asked Indigenous leader Thomas Mayo to join us on Human Cogs to have an open conversation about what the voice to parliament means and why it will play an important role in Australia's future. Mayo sits on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's referendum working group, which drafted the referendum question. His signature was on the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and when the PM announced the referendum question, he chose Thomas Mayo to stand at his side. Mayo has co-written a book with acclaimed journalist Kerry O'Brien called The Voice to Parliament Handbook to equip you and I and all Australians with balanced and fair information about The Voice. So no matter your view, I encourage you to listen to this conversation and make it your responsibility to make an informed decision when you step up to vote on October 14. Here's my conversation with Thomas Mayo. Thomas Mayo, welcome to Human Cox. Uh, It's an incredibly busy time for you in the lead up to uh, the referendum later this year, so we appreciate you having a conversation with us today. Um, We thought we'd kick this conversation off with a reading of the Uluru Statement from the heart. I can do that. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes are the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture, from the creation according to the common law 
from time immemorial, and according to science, more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born there from remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and it coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? Did a peoples possess the land for 60 millennia, and this sacred link should disappear from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alien from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for the future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish, they will walk into worlds, and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarada is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarada Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. That's the Uluru Statement. Thanks for reading that, Thomas. You were, of course, a signatory to this statement, and here we are six years on as our nation sits divided by the voice campaign and ongoing and fierce debate about enshrining a First Nations voice to Parliament in the Constitution. Six years on, why have these powerful words not been heard? Well, it's, uh, it's a big country and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are spread across it as only 3% of the population uh, thereabouts. And so it's a real struggle for us to be heard. It was uh, the statement that I recited just then uh, is a unique uh, consensus where we had an opportunity uh, to come together uh, in dialogues uh, covering the entire continent and adjacent islands, regional dialogues, uh, 13 in total. There were three days each. Uh, they uh, decided what the priorities were for constitutional recognition in each of those dialogues and then elected delegates that came together in a culminating convention uh, that went over three days in the heart of the nation at Uluru. And, uh, and that is where we, uh, you know, had passionate debate and discussion and landed on those words that I recited. Um, and, uh, and it calls for a voice. Um, the torment of our powerlessness is our voicelessness. It calls for a voice because, you know, even such a wonderful consensus, a political feat that really, uh, you know, is, is something that could be celebrated forever, uh, just with all those diverse perspectives and experiences. Uh, with all the traumas that we carry 
uh, reaching that agreement, the first time it was read, um, you know, it, that it's not better known is, is just a demonstration of, of why Indigenous people need a voice in the first place. You, of course, have been a leading voice and advocate since the inception of, of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And, and even prior to that, so much of your work has been to try and create um, a case for the cause of greater justice for, for your people. Why you? Why did you decide that, that you would dedicate yourself to this? It's a good question. Um, uh, well, firstly, it's because I care. You know, uh, I, I was a, a wharfie from when I was 17 uh, for 16 years. I became a union official in 2010, and it was after 2010 that I got more deeply involved in my own people's struggles, you know, where there were terrible injustices, uh, such as, uh, you know, what the Four Corners exposed at the Dondale Youth Detention Facility in Darwin, um, when Tony Abbott had cut hundreds of millions of dollars from community services, uh, having a great impact on, on those families that needed those services to help them to overcome the traumas and the challenges that they are facing. Uh, in remote communities and, and regional towns like Alice Springs. Um, and I knew it would have repercussions at the time, and, and it's true. I mean, you look at the youth crime uh, in in towns like Alice Springs and you consider the decision to cut that funding from services for children with fetal alcohol syndrome, uh, you know, uh, uh, families trying to deal with, uh, you know, domestic violence and, you know, women that needed uh, shelter and protection and services. Um, you know, all of those decisions had repercussions. But the, to answer your question, I, I just, I, I moved from my uh, worker advocacy to that just because I had learned how to organize and to, uh, you know, help people to come together and uh, to try and um, put pressure on decision makers to do better. Uh, and um, I, I just had to step up, you know, because it was an area that really lacked voice. You know, for our protests and uh, our efforts and even meetings with ministers behind closed doors, all those sorts of efforts just weren't making any headway, you know, which naturally led to me looking for how we could do things better. And when we decided on the Uluru Statement, I really believe that it is um, such a vital step to uh, seeing better outcomes for Indigenous people. You have, of course, had widespread, widespread criticism and attacks and opposition internally from within Indigenous communities. So whilst it's a unified voice that's represented in that, there has been um, some counter counter voices. Who are your main um, allies in your in your current campaign and fight? Who, who do you have alongside you um, to, to raise your voice? Yeah, well, I think the, the, the first thing to point out there is that uh, the Uluru process was the most well-resourced uh, indigenous expert led, um, you know, and, and locally led process of reaching an understanding of what we could collectively agree should be done next. And it was difficult because indigenous people are no different from any other group of human beings. We, uh, we're not homogenous. We have, uh, our different experiences and, and perspectives and political ideologies. And, you know, people are motivated by many varying things. Uh, I think the process that led to the making of the Uluru Statement gives the call for a voice uh, great integrity uh, and demonstrates that it is something that is majority supported by Indigenous people. And you connect that up with a whole lot of polling that has been done, you know, uh, almost 800 out of 800,000 uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, 800 being the sample for polling, is a is a substantial poll uh, when you consider that, you know, we're 
normal polling is, you know, a couple of thousand people out of, you know, millions, 15 million or something like that. And they indicate over 80% support. So really confident that a majority of Indigenous people are walking together on this and uh, uh, as the Uluru Statement does, invites Australians to, to walk with us and vote yes for this. Um, and our allies are across the political spectrum. Uh, you know, over the past six years, we have built a, a movement that includes, uh, you know, strong sort of left-wing unions like mine, the Maritime Union, uh, walking alongside the Business Council of Australia, you know, and um, uh, NGOs, uh, religious groups, uh, you know, well over 100 multicultural groups. Uh, we have allies, uh, you know, from across the political spectrum. The only real opposition is coming from, you know, right-wing think tanks and, you know, mostly the federal uh, coalition uh, front benches, but they can be pretty noisy and uh, and uh, make it seem like uh, this is a country divided. Of course, there are those that are for no and, and for yes uh, for their own reasons, but um, I think uh, what I hope we can help people understand is that uh, for all of the politics that have crept into this, unfortunately, because it shouldn't be political, it's such a modest proposal, um, this is going to be a unifying moment for our country when we vote yes, to include Indigenous people that have been marginalised for so long in our constitution and to do it in a practical way by giving us a say to be able to offer the solutions to Parliament and guide them to better decisions. So the modest proposal, um, let, let's go straight to that because there's been so much, as you say, it's highly politicised, it's very difficult to cut through the spin cycle of the news and the noise to say, what is the voice to Parliament? So for the listeners, let's cut through all the political noise right now and say exactly what this is. This is simply uh, recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our constitution by establishing a body could be to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. It's an advisory voice. That's all we're talking about here. A voice to parliament uh, elected by Indigenous people with set terms. Uh, so there's accountability from, you know, to uh, their communities. And it can just give advice. Uh, we've heard all sorts of fear mongering with the, you know, dishonesty of the no campaign. Uh, people being led to believe that they're going to lose their backyards or their farms or that Indigenous people are going to be deciding, uh, you know, what interest rates are and what parking ticket fines are and all this sort of fear mongering that's going on. Uh, the simplest way to respond to that is it's advisory. The Parliament still decides all things, uh, including, you know, where funding goes and all that. So, there's nothing to be afraid of this. Just a, a say, you know, it's a matter of fairness. A body that's advisory and has a consultation process with the government but but cannot then step into actually policy areas and, and have overreach in that sense. So so an advisory body like like any advisory body body that the government already would use for different areas of policy making. Exactly, yeah. It can advise on what policies the government and parliament make. Uh, but it cannot make them itself. Uh, it cannot decide laws. It cannot decide funding. Um, and, you know, we think that uh, is an important thing, you know. I mean, I think if, if people really think about it, in a democracy, that matters. And it matters even to an individual level, you know, or, uh, you know, a, a smaller group of, of people. If you have decisions being made about you, then it's just fair that you get to have a say. You know, you might not be able to decide what that decision, you know, like uh, uh, it's like a, you know, yeah, anything. It, it just at least have a say about it. And we know that that's achievable because it's so fair and modest, as I said. 
And I suppose one of the things has been um, the question around why amend the constitution to bring the voice to life. It's a really important question, Adelaide. Uh, the uh, our experience and what we considered in those dialogues that I mentioned, and uh, when we came together in the heart of the nation at Uluru, was the the lessons that we can learn from uh, our long history of struggle to be recognised and to be heard. The Uluru statement is one of many statements and petitions. Uh, such as the Yakala Bark petitions or the Barunga statement. And they were mostly dismissed and ignored, those statements and petitions, and they were written to kings or queens or the parliament. So the Uluru statement, lesson number one, was let's write this uh, collective decision to the Australian people as an invitation, not to a king or a queen or a parliament. Um, we also looked at how uh, all of those statements and petitions called for a voice. And every time we have established a voice or a representative body, you know, to speak coherently and in a proper way uh, on behalf of a, a large group of people, uh, those voices have been silent. So uh, the Australian Aboriginal Progressive Association in the 20s, there's been the Aboriginal Advancement League, there's been uh, FACATSI, the NACC, the NAC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, uh, and every time we've had these voices, we've made great progress. There's been really good uh, progress in communities for better housing and health. And the the pattern throughout our history, the lesson that we couldn't ignore was that all of those voices were taken away. They were silenced, as I said. And when they are, when we don't have a voice, we're much more easily divided and then exploited. Uh, you know, policies are made too easily, uh, you know, without us. Uh, the, the policies and programs then tend to be wasteful, uh, you know, or make things actually worse, harm us. And so the great lesson in this is that we need to have the courage to ask the Australian people to enshrine it in the constitution because all those other voices were set up by our own means or, or legislated. But always another government came along afterwards, you know, so one party you know, in power would set up a, a representative body for Indigenous people. The next one would come along, they'd play some political games with it, and then they would just they would silence it, maybe set it up their own later on, uh, and around you go. And even that is wasteful, you know, establishing these bodies and then, you know, with the political cycle, they're chopped and changed or taken away. So that's why we propose uh, uh, enshrinement in the Constitution, because the Constitution is just a high-level set of laws. And basically, they're the principles that, uh, you know, this nation operates by. And when we vote yes, um, it, it establishes the principle in the Constitution that uh, Indigenous people are here and recognised, um, but there is an expectation that there be uh, a mechanism or a body for um, Parliament to listen before they make decisions about us. Yeah, certainly there's been a long history of fly-in, fly-out bureaucrats um, with, you know, as you say, the cycles of politics, a lot of policy and dollars thrown at failed schemes um, across housing, health, education, etc. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of, and, and it's it's wicked because there are multiple things to address here in terms of looking at improving outcomes to Indigenous people. But I, I suppose the question to you is, how would you do it? I mean, what do you think is the priority? What should be tackled? Um, should there be an, you know policy um, and commitment and economic resourcing for Indigenous populations? What is the thing that, that you would most like to see changed? Well, the reason I'm so passionate about this referendum campaign to establish a voice is because the voice is key to all of the 
priorities in our communities. Uh, and having been a person that has joined uh, my brothers and sisters to see better justice uh, or better housing, you know, uh, economic opportunities in, on country, those things are, are, are priorities, but we are not making a lot of progress in the absence of a voice. And so I'd say, you know, the, the, the priority, uh, the most urgent thing is the voice itself. Um, and once the voice is established, uh, having traveled extensively for six years to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, uh, you know, there, you know, in the bush under a tree with the butcher's paper and red texter, um, putting up the priorities, they are those things, housing, education, employment, um, health and access to dialysis, you know, machines, uh, you know, those are the, the number one, you know, sort of top line priorities. And that's what the voice will turn its focus to once we establish it making too little progress without a voice though on all of those things part of uh, making that progress is of course scaling your message out to the australian population around some of these areas and earlier this year you collaborated with kerry o'brien celebrated journalist um to collaborate and write your book um on the voice um the handbook about fifty thousand copies or so have sold why did you collaborate with kerry in particular uh, well, firstly, I thought I should take on a co-author because I was running out of time. It was about October last year and uh, I needed to get started. But I, when I decided to take a co-author on, I, I thought I, I I would reach out to a non-Indigenous person because, you know, it's a, uh, it's about all of us, this. Uh, it's important to all of us. And uh, and I'd done a little with Kerry uh, for my previous books, um, you know, book talks uh, in conversation with him and he came to mind and his experience is, uh, you know, I think second to none, you know, over half a century of covering uh, blow by blow, uh, you know, the, the politics and Indigenous affairs and, and broad, more broadly. And you've also been travelling all over the country as part of that book, putting that book out there to public, um, but starting local grassroots, yes, groups to really try and activate those conversations and communities. Against that, you've got misinformation circulating and, of course, the, the fear-based um, conversations that are going on. What mis- misinformation are you most concerned about? Oh, look, it's it's this it's such a variety of misinformation uh, and contradictory as well coming from the the same no campaign group. You know, uh, for example, uh, I think a, a Guardian report exposed it. Uh, the no campaign has uh, Facebook pages uh, that they are sponsoring and. Uh, two different Facebook pages. One of them is appealing to the uh, people that are afraid of losing something. So, you know, a mostly non-Indigenous audience and saying that, you know, things like it's going to have too much power, it's going to cause chaos in government and you're going to lose your backyard and all that sort of stuff. And then they have uh, another Facebook page that they are sponsoring that uh, is towards a, an Indigenous audience saying it's too weak and it, uh, it won't achieve enough. Um, and that it's a sellout position, you know, and, and basically promoting all sorts of conspiracies. Um, and so, you know, they have it much easier in this campaign. They only need to confuse and cause fear. And, um, and, and that is their strategy. And I encourage, um, all, all the listeners, you know, all Australians to, um, the way that we're going to get through that is for us to make sure that we have the correct information as I'm, uh, talking about today, the yes23.com.au, the pamphlets, uh, you know, uh, even, uh, you know, the NIAA uh, website has uh, the straight facts 
uh, the, the, the provision that will go into the constitution should we vote yes is only 92 words so so get a hold of that provision you know and uh you know get some training on how to have conversations if you feel you need it from the yes 23 website register as a volunteer but the way we're going to get through this misinformation is just to talk to each other conversations work through everybody that you can possibly speak with help them have that information be respectful if they're against it you know don't you know attack them and just ask them to reflect and take the information away um there's around 30 percent of australians uh, are undecided is what our polling tells us and so that's an opportunity uh i've been to many train stations pamphleting with volunteers in the last couple of weeks i was at the balmain ferry terminal this morning um i've been door knocking and the feeling out there is is of curiosity and much more support than what we're seeing in the polls and the media so i hope that gives you some uh, some vigor you know they get involved you know we do need volunteers as well well, hopefully some of our listeners will, you know, take up that cause and check out some of those resources. You, of course, have also sat on Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's referendum working group, uh, which drafted the referendum question. Um, what is the proposed referendum question? Yeah, so the question is, uh, I haven't got it in front of me, but I can, I'm sure I can get it very close. It's basically uh, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise uh, the First Peoples by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Uh, do you agree to the proposed alteration? So it's something along those lines. It's a very simple question. Um, you know, do you agree to a voice um, uh, and recognition? If we go to this referendum and we all wake up the day after and it's a no, what will this mean for Indigenous Australia and the way forward? If this goes down, geez, i tell you what. I mean, it's if we can't accept... Uh, such a generous proposition to recognise a people that we hear for over 60,000 years, according to science, uh, that they also say is the longest continuing civilization on the planet. And to do it in a way that just gives us the opportunity to make representations, so just to give advice about decisions that are made about us, you really have to wonder, you know, who are we as Australians? Uh, it would be detrimental also uh, for the self-esteem of Indigenous people having put ourselves out there for Australians to decide, uh, you know, to be that vulnerable, uh, to ask for unity and to have that thrown back in our face. Uh, I think it'll have uh, mental health impacts uh, and the, the gap uh, hasn't closed. It's gotten worse. The 2023 Closing the Gap report shows that for of the areas, uh, you know, um, that we are trying to, so just some of the, the gap, just for the listeners, Indigenous people have a life expectancy gap of eight years less than non-Indigenous Australians. Uh, suicide rates are around twice as high. Uh, incarceration rates are the highest in the world proportionately. This, this is actually uh, not improving in many areas. And we have to do something different. And so if this is rejected, it's sort of uh, an acceptance of the status quo uh, that isn't working. Uh, and Indigenous people ourselves uh, collectively have said this is the, the way that we can reach better outcomes and it's a voice. So uh, we will be in a terrible position as a country. I think also the world looking at us, uh, most, uh, well, not most, all 
like nations. So nations, uh, first world countries that have uh, colonial history, uh, all of them have recognized their indigenous peoples in the constitution. And so we'll be seen as a real backward country. We can't even catch up with this, you know, opportunity to do so. Mm -hmm. Have you met with uh, other groups internationally to understand um, how to most effectively sort of both run your campaign, but understand how to move toward this moment of referendum? Well, it's a bit, we're unique, uh, as I said, Australia, in that we're the, you know, the only like nation that hasn't recognised Indigenous people in their constitution or their foundational documents yet. Our brothers and sisters across the sea there, the Māori people, uh, you know, New Zealand uh, have uh, the Treaty of Waitangi, you know, and they recognised their Indigenous peoples in that uh, a long time ago. And they really celebrate their culture, you know. Uh, people are proud to know some language and, uh, you know, the, it's it's a... It's something that makes them a more uh, united country, uh, unified, you know, with that, you know, rather than just a couple of hundred years of history and culture, they can celebrate thousands. And uh, we're much more ancient than any other civilization on earth. So wouldn't it be great, you know, for Aussies to be able to say, you know, uh, constitutionally, uh, we're the oldest country in the world. You know, we have the longest continuing civilization in the world and we share that. That's a great gift uh, mm. of voting yes in this referendum. We often hear uh, the phrase walking in two worlds. How, what has been your experience of that and how difficult is that in reality? Yeah, I mean, you have communities that are in third world conditions, you know, so that's, that's the existing two worlds right now. Uh, you have those stark gaps, you know, uh, in life expectancy, ex expectancy, expectancy mm -hmm. uh, and all those things. So uh, I would rather, and as the Uluru Statement says, the two worlds could be something that we celebrate, you know, and it's something that our children can be proud of, uh, you know, uh, understanding the Indigenous world and, you know, our seasons, our languages, our dances, our uh, artwork with our modern Australia, you know, mateship and barbecues and dongs and all those things, you know, we can celebrate both. And uh, that's why I think this will be a unifying thing when we accept Indigenous, because we're not in the constitution at the moment, as I stand. Uh, we're divided as we are, um, the gap, and that we're not uh, included in the constitution. This will be a unifying moment when we achieve it. Thomas, it, it must be taking a big toll on you personally, um, this 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 work and this relentless campaign. Um, how how are you holding up? How are you personally managing yourself? Uh, I'm just uh, I'm full of energy. You know, I've been working hard on this for six years. Uh, you know, even during COVID, I didn't stop. By uh, myself and Lara Watson from the ACTU, we trained over two thousand people to uh, advocate for you know what the Uluru Statement calls for. Uh, I plan to work every day until it's done and I'm, I'm not tiring. I'll have a rest when, when we've won. Well, uh, wish you all, all the best and, and energy and fortitude in the coming months ahead. Thank you for joining us to explain more about The Voice and we'll put some links to those resources in the show notes. We like to ask all of our guests this final question. Um, when you think about all the people that you know uh, and are connecting with across The Voice and the campaign, who do you think is doing human well? Human well. Oh, geez. Uh, I, there's just too many to, to name. I mean, I've met so many wonderful people 
uh, you know, like this morning at the at the ferry wharf there in Balmain, uh, just people that are giving up their own time, uh, you know, are putting themselves out there, people that have never campaigned before or door knocked and, and they're just hitting the streets and helping us. Over, I think we're up to 25,000 volunteers across the country. So, um, you know, join us and let's all be humans doing well. Thanks again, Thomas. Thank you, Melo. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well.